Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we pause now and we come into this class together, we pray that we would know thy presence with us. Lord, we have been reminded already today of thy concern and thy knowledge of us. And Lord, we pray that the implications of that and the applications of that would reach to our souls. And as we consider, Lord, this matter that uh, surrounds your word concerning the world in which the Bible was given, that we might have understanding and a greater illumination and appreciation of the authority and the sanctity of thy holy word. So guide our thoughts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, did everybody get one of these little sheets that I have for today? Did I give you two? Okay, now I have read Psalm 78 today. Because the majority of this text after verse four that we stopped reading uh, is all history as the Lord gives a review here of his dealings with the people in their history. But what is interesting to me, and I think most significant, is the opening words where the psalmist says, I'm going to be opening my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old. The word parable there has the idea of being like something, being like something. And history in the biblical context here uh, is more than simply facts. All right, we think of history. Did you get one of these? History is more than just a record of facts, biblical history. It is indeed a demonstration not only of God's supervision and control, but there's a spiritual message that God would have us to learn from history. And that really is what has generated our discussion here. People coming in here, let me just take a little walk here and because I hate for you not to have this. Oh, she needs her own stew. Okay. Yeah, there be. Thank you. 
All right, so last week we started looking at this special uh, topic as we consider the world uh, of the Bible, that uh, the Bible did not just drop to earth or some bookstore, uh, all leather-bound, but it was given over a period of time to real people living in real time, facing circumstances and situations of life that God was addressing. And the more we can come to understand something of the world in which the Bible was given, the more than we can have an appreciation as to why God said what he said and will help us understand why God did say some of the things that he said. And we considered some of those things last time. Now, today I want to talk a little bit here about the nature of history, both from a biblical perspective and what we are going to see in the world of the Bible. Now, the sheet that I've given to you here is just, they have it in the back, I don't have them now. It's just a little synopsis of some of the data that we have from the ancient world that will parallel the material that we have in the Old Testament, particularly, be my concern here, uh, and give us an idea as to what the world was like. But we're going to be dealing, I say, with history. Now, that raises the question, first of all, as to what history is. What do we mean by history? On the one hand, it's all past stuff, right? All the past events, all the past people, uh, all past stuff uh, would constitute, I suppose, uh, history. But that raises the question then as to what's required in writing a history. Well, first of all, if I'm going to write a history, I have to know the past stuff. And number two, I have to realize that not everything in the past is really particularly significant. So what is my worldview? Uh, what is my particular perspective of all the past stuff that I know uh, that will constitute then the written history. And my worldview, I say, is going to have uh, a big part to play in how I select from what I know about past stuff to write that particular history. And depending upon that worldview, depending upon your particular bias, you're going to have a different take on that past stuff. I was uh, born and raised on the other side of the state. And uh, when I learned about American history, you know, I, I was told back in those days anyway, where I came from, that Abraham Lincoln was the best president that has ever walked the face of this earth, right? I lived in Carolina for 40 years and in Carolina, same stuff. There was not a worse scoundrel that ever walked the face of this earth than Abraham Lincoln. So you have the same database of facts, but depending upon your perspective, your worldview, your bias, you're going to have a different take on those facts. And, and boy, are we seeing that you know, today, right? We're having uh, a, a different take now on American history. Uh, and we have all this 
woke stuff and this cancel stuff than as you have in the uh, critical race theory, viewing history from that particular perspective. How you view, your worldview is going to dictate what your history is going to look like. Now, if we compare then divine history, and this, this book here is divine history. This is the word of God. Uh, much of it is going to be narrative. Much of it is going to be historical for us. So what's the difference then? ultimately between a divine history and, and human history. Well, first of all, any human history is based upon a limited knowledge of past stuff. There is no historian that has ever known everything about the past. And then with his limited knowledge, with his limited knowledge of the past, he then has his particular worldview that is going to dictate what it is that he selects as, world, as the history. So it's going to be narrow in terms of the amount of knowledge, limited, and then also whatever his particular perspective is. The only person, the only being that knows all past stuff is God. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. And he has the right perspective, if I can put it in those terms, on what he knows about the past to create then a history. And I would argue, and as we look at some of this data from the ancient Near East, there are going to be disagreements. There are going to be disagreements between what the Bible says historically and what some secular account says historically. Invariably, and this is one of the things that you don't have to deal with all the time, but it bugs me, right? When, whenever a critic, whenever a critic will, if, if there's ever a difference between what the Bible says and what some secular account says, the critic is invariably going to say that the Bible's wrong. And that the secular account, written, after all, is written in stone. It's written in stone, and there it is. We find it, and it, it gives a view of uh, the world that is different from what the Bible says. And the secular critic, the biblical critic, will say, Bible is wrong, and here is. I'm going to be very dogmatic here. Are there times when the secular history disagrees with the biblical history? Yes, many times. But in every instance, the Bible is right and they're wrong, you see. Because the Bible is the only historical book that comes from an author that is omniscient, that knows all the past stuff, and has the right perspective on that past stuff to constitute what is a truly significant history. So, for instance... And you'll see some of this on the, on the sheet here. If you look back on the, on the second side, I think, uh, I, I mentioned under point five there, the Mesha inscription, for instance, uh, sometimes called the Moabite stone. And this is a fascinating little piece. It mentions Omri and it mentions Ahab uh, as the kings of Israel that had subdued some of the lands of Moab. And Moab now was rebelling against, uh, against uh, the house of, of Ahab. Uh, interesting stuff. Now you compare that with the Bible history. Now the Bible does 
mentioned Omri, obviously. It mentions Ahab. But the only thing that we know about Omri from the Bible is that he was a wicked king, that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and that he moved the capital of Israel, northern kingdom, from Terzah to Samaria. And that's basically all we know about King Omri. But from the Moabite inscription, the Mesha inscription, it's clear that he was a, uh, had military expertise. He was able to expand the borders of Israel into Moab. Did God know that? Well, sure he did. Sure he knew that. But it wasn't particularly significant. Right? That was not the real significant part that God wanted us to. In this whole episode, most of the history in the Bible concerns Elijah and Elisha in this period of, of Ahab, right? Uh, here's these two prophets. Secular history says nothing about them. But here's what God, so what God sees to be important, if you will, is invariably going to be different than what the world uh, sees as being significant. So let's not be intimidated. Let's not be intimidated just because something was found in, uh, found in some ancient uh, archaeological site is written in stone and therefore, yeah, uh, they had their spin doctors, right, as we have in, in regard to history today. Uh, and I want to take it, I, wa I want to get the information I can. But when there are any differences of opinion between what the Bible says and what the secular account says, the Bible is true. All right, the Bible is true, and I'm going to emphasize that, and I want to make sure that we understand that, and I know that you do. Uh, but the world in which we live, that's not really the popular, the popular notion. So what I want to do today is just, before I get into any real specific details, just give you a little survey of some of the data that we do have that has been preserved for us uh, in different cultures, different societies that give us information that will open uh, the historical context of the world of the Bible. Now, I mentioned here, first of all, some Egyptian material. Now, in Israel's early history, obviously, their connection with Egypt was, was profound. Uh, we heard today, uh, we heard today that that word of, uh, that was given to Abraham, uh, that his seed was going to be for 400-odd years uh, in Egypt. Uh, they were going to be for that period in Egypt. Uh, and we have that when we ended the book of Genesis. Uh, you, you know the story there at the end of Genesis as Jacob, uh, his sons are, are upset with Joseph, right? They sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph is there in, in Egypt preparing the way. Here come now the Israelites, not, not a nation yet, just a pretty big family. They, they come into Egypt and they are there from that point on until we turn the page to Genesis some 400 years. Uh, have transpired. And now we have uh, Moses coming and delivering uh, the people from that iron furnace of affliction, that place of bondage. So the, the connection between Israel and Egypt was, was profound, particularly in those early days. Uh, and it, it's interesting then that we do have a lot of material uh, that has come to us from Egypt that will have some bearing upon how we even understand uh, some of the issues in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I, I mentioned, you've all heard of the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, uh, the Rosetta Stone, that was a discovery that uh, opened up the Egyptian hieroglyphic for us. Uh, Rosetta Stone was, had, had 
uh, had, had three sections. One was the hieroglyphic, one was in what was called a demonic script, uh, which was a handwritten kind of version of the hieroglyphic, and then uh, a Greek text. And we know what Greek is, so using the Greek translation, they were able to discover decipher what the Egyptian hieroglyphic was, and that's an yeah, interesting story. That goes all the way back to the time of Napoleon uh, when that was discovered. So all these Egyptian materials are, are, are written in hieroglyphic for the most part, uh, but they are uh, important documents for us. So I mentioned the pyramid text here. Uh, these were a collection of incantations and spells from a period of Egyptian history that predates Abraham, uh, that predates Abraham. I, I, I know that we sometimes, you know, when, when I was a kid, uh, in Sunday school class, right, you'd always have the flannel graph. You have, people don't know what flannel graph is anymore, right? We had flannel graph stories of, uh, of, of Bible events. And so we had Israel going down into Egypt, and my, my Sunday school teacher thought that it was Israel that built the pyramids, right? And so they had the flannel graph story of building the pyramids and, yeah, whatever. The pyramids were there long before Israel ever set foot uh, in, in Egypt. Uh, as probably one of the things that Abraham told Sarah, come on, let me take you on a vacation down here to Egypt and let me show you the pyramids. Uh, they, they were there long before, uh, long before Abraham even uh, came on the scene. But these pyramid texts are dealing with the issue uh, of of life after death. Uh, the, the Old Testament is often accused of having very little to say about the resurrection, very little to say about life after death. Uh, that's not quite true, and I can multiply examples where resurrection is there and where the concept of life after death is there, but this is the common attack that is given against the Bible. Uh, that the Old Testament knew nothing about life after death. Well, here, the Bible is coming into a world in which, if I could put it in these ways, there was a preoccupation uh, with life after death. Immortality, life after death, was not something that had to be proven to the ancient mind. Uh, and we know from Egypt, even, that all of these texts are dealing with how to transport yourself into the, uh, into the next life. Uh, the coffin text, uh, same kind of a thing. Now, the, the pyramid texts were primarily concerned about royalty. Uh, the coffin texts were now bringing this same concept of immortality and traveling into the uh, netherworld and the next world uh, on the level of the commoner, right? So it was widespread. And same thing for the, uh, for the Book of the Dead, uh, collection of magic charms to protect what is there. So I'm saying that this gives us an idea that at least in Egypt, and we'll move in Mesopotamia in due course, uh, that in Egypt there was this preoccupation. So it wasn't something that the Hebrew Bible had to prove. Now it corrected many of the notions obviously, uh, but it does give us, I say, something of that mindset. Uh, the Sanuhi tale, uh, this was an exiled servant uh, that went into Canaan. And it's interesting that here, again, this is long before Abraham. And the Sanuhi tale talks about uh, this servant that is exiled for whatever reason into, uh, into, Eden, or in, into Canaan. And he describes Canaan as a land that was flowing with milk and honey. 
the same kind of description that we have of that land in the Bible uh, we have from this Egyptian uh, source uh, as well. And the other thing, uh, the Winuum, that's an Egyptian papyrus that talked about, again, uh, a commoner that was sent into Phoenicia and some of the same descriptions. So the world, right, the world was, was known. And it was a, 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 there's an interchange uh, of, uh, of behavior, of actions, of, of travel, of commerce uh, in that ancient world uh, into uh, Palestine. Then we have the Mesopotamian uh, materials, uh, and these are going to be mostly, uh, mostly most helpful uh, for us. Uh, the Behistun inscriptions, what deciphered the Akkadian language for us, uh, and that's the primary text language that this material is going to be written in, uh, Akkadian. I remember when I, little digression here, when I was in school, and, and I was learning Akkadian. And, and I went home for Christmas at one time, and my grandfather, who always worked with his hands as a carpenter and thought my life was, I was wasting my life, uh, said, well, what, what, he said what, what are you studying, boy? What are you studying, boy? Always called me a boy. Don't think he knew my name. Always called me a boy. He said, boy, what are you studying? I says, Grandpa, I'm, I'm learning Akkadian. What's that? I told him what Akkadian was. He said, what are you going to do with that? He says, I, I, I says, Grandpa, I want to teach. I want to teach. And then he asked this question that made me question my whole reason for living. He said, I want to teach. He said, what are they going to do with it? Right? <laughs> so so, so there, you, there you go. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Akkadian was the principal language of Mesopotamia for, for uh, more than almost 2,000 years. And much of the material that I'll be talking about uh, was written in that language. Uh, and it gives us a great deal of insight, I say, into, into the world. Law codes, I, I think you've all heard of Hammurabi, for instance. Uh, Hammurabi's law code uh, that has parallels to some of the things that we have in the uh, laws of the Old Testament. Uh, Eshnuna, Lipit Ishtar, but certainly Hammurabi would be the most uh, familiar uh, to us. And you, you see something there of what they regarded as being criminal acts, if you will. You compare that with what we see in the, and you know, it, it's interesting that some of the things, some of the things I remember you read in the Bible and you wonder why. Why would God have to say that? Why would God have to say that? I remember you know, reading things as a kid, uh, prohibiting uh, behavior with animals and so forth, right? And I said, come on, why would, who would even think of that? Uh, who would even think of that? And we have regulations in the Bible, but when you see some of the literature from the ancient Near East here, and it wasn't that they were prohibiting it, they were regulating it, all right? They were regulating that kind of behavior with, with animals, bestiality, the, the depravity and, and the perverseness of that world uh, that... And so we see, this is why God, you're going, to, you're going to be going into this world in which this kind of stuff, you're going to see it. And they're going to be practicing this. It's going to be part of their religion. You stay away, right? So there's the prohibition, uh, that the separation again from the practices even of that, of that world. Historical annals, 
uh, oh, going to be a lot here. Uh, I think what we call the Taylor prism, the Cyrus cylinder or Sennacherib uh, cylinder. We, you know that the Bible gives us uh, the record of Hezekiah, for instance. Uh, and, and we know that Hezekiah was the king of the southern kingdom at the time that the northern kingdom uh, had fallen. Um, and in the providence of God, the Assyrians were not capable, they were not able to subdue the southern kingdom because it wasn't time and God's providential judgment for the uh, exile to happen to them. But nonetheless, the Assyrians tried. The Assyrians tried. And we have in the time of Hezekiah, uh, Sennacherib, right? You can read about this in your Bible. Sennacherib was coming against Jerusalem. Uh, he, he was... Uh, ransacking Lachish and other cities, and now he's going to come up against Jerusalem. He got this threatening letter from the Rabshakeh, from the official, uh, about what was going to happen. And Hezekiah took that letter, remember, before the Lord, and he prayed before the Lord. And Isaiah the prophet joined in the prayer, uh, and God spared him. And God spared him. But we have the biblical account uh, of Sennacherib's invasion of, of Judah. Well, the Taylor prism gives us Sennacherib's account. Uh, of that very thing. It talks about Hezekiah. He said, I've got Hezekiah and he's caged up like a bird. He's caged up like a bird. I've got him. I've got him. Uh, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, uh, he, has, he has the retreat. Now we know why. We know why. Remember what the Bible tells us? Uh, that on that one night, uh, as he's ready to come against, uh, coming against Judah, there, there comes this mysterious thing that happened a hundred the angel came and a hundred and eighty thousand or so uh, of the Assyrians were killed in in camp and so they fled they fled uh interesting interesting the Taylor prism says nothing about that uh that invasion but I'm not surprised all right I'm not surprised here's the spin doctor here's the spin doctor uh that was a piece of information that was not going to uh, be profitable for, for the Assyrian record. And you read some of these documents and see these historical occasions. Nobody ever lost a battle. Uh, whoever wrote it, we, we, have, we have documents, for instance, from the Hittites and, and the Egyptians. They're, they're fighting against each other and both, according to their documents, won the victory. Uh, nobody ever lost because these were, they were bias, all right? They were bias. And but I see then the, uh, the differences, but it does. It, it tells me that, yeah, even secular history realizes here's a biblical character and, and, and here is this uh, situation uh, where we were about ready to conquer them, but all of a sudden they just, they just go. Uh, we see the parallels. Um, I, 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 mentioned, uh, I, I mentioned the, uh, well, not a couple, couple of them mentioned this one too. Uh, because one of the things, and I don't know if I touched on this last week or not, what, one of the things that uh, the critics will do, they have their idea based upon silence, based upon whatever, that the Bible is wrong. The Bible is always wrong, right? Uh, so, for instance, you read Daniel. You read Daniel, and in chapter, in, in chapter 5 of Daniel, uh, you, you have Belshazzar. Remember the feast there and the handwriting on the wall and uh, the Babel, uh, the, the, the Syrian, or, or the, the Persians come, and, and now they conquer Babylon in, in that night. Uh, and 
the Bible makes reference to here Belshazzar. Well, we know from other up to this point in the Babylonian documents that Nabonidus uh, was the king of Babylon, not Belshazzar. Secular history said nothing at all about Belshazzar. So what's the only conclusion you could possibly come up with? Bible's wrong. Bible's made a mistake. Uh, there's no such thing as a Belshazzar until they discovered a document called the Nabonidus Chronicle and the Cyrus Cylinder, and guess what? Guess what? Now, Belshazzar is specifically named. Uh, and a, a reversal of, of the critical notions here concerning, uh, concerning the truth of the Bible. Now, Belsh we knew that Belshazzar, I don't care if secular history never said a word about Belshazzar. I know that Belshazzar was that co-regent in Babylon uh, at that very time, but now archaeology has proven, has proven, yes, uh, the Bible, right, the Bible doesn't need proving, remember, right, don't prove the Bible. The Bible stands by itself without that, but here is this illumination, yes, secular, critics have to now make that admission, same thing with the Hittites. Uh, for years and years and years, you know, there's, there's Abraham bought his, but Sarah's grave from the Hittites and reference to the Hittites, Hittite, Hitt and, and secular history knew nothing about the Hittites until all of a sudden, uh, here's a discovery. And it wasn't just a little people, it was a whole empire that had been, uh, ha had been lost. Bible knew about it. Yes. I'd say they'd be very interesting, right? Like if I found the book of Jasher or, you know, something like that. I'd say that's as curious as anything, but I would not regard it as inspired, right? This opens up a whole other area that we can talk about someday, uh, that inspiration, inspiration guarantees canonicity, that books are canonical as soon as they are written if they're inspired, right? So inspiration guarantees canonicity, and canonicity guarantees preservation, right? Uh, so if I found, if I found, if, if I found the book of Jasher next week, and it said on there, really, honestly, this is the book that the Bible makes reference to. I said, that is curious, and that's as interesting as all get out, but it's not inspired, right? Not inspired, because it's not been preserved. Discovery, discovery does not equate to preservation. I want to see a continuity, right, a continuity. Uh, and that's, that's a key issue here in regard not only to the books that are canonical, but also in regard to the text, right, of the scripture, yeah. I want to be doing a couple of series of lectures down in the Kalamazoo Church uh, this month and then next month on, on that very issue, all right. First of all, on, on canonicity, how do I know, uh, two, two questions really. You know, how do I know the Bible is the word of God? And number two, how do I know I have the Bible, right? I know the Bible is the word of God by faith. I believe what the Bible says concerning its inspiration, its authority, right? But how do I know that? That's, that's supernatural. Inspira oh, my time is gone. Let me, let me just say this so I don't. Uh, inspiration is a supernatural event, right? But the canonicity and the preservation is, is a providential event, right? But providence is a work of God, and it's no less a work of God than a supernatural work. 
So the providence of God guarantees, I say, the canonicity that we recognize those books that are inspired and also then the preservation not only of those books but also of the text, the words. Uh, so I, I'm going to give one lecture down there on the issues of canonicity and then on the next, the next month I think they've asked me to talk about the nature of the text, uh, different translation, different version, how do we evaluate it? Yeah, so yeah, it's going to be interesting, I think, maybe. Okay, good question. It's a good question. All right, my time is gone. Sorry for going a little over time. Uh, but we'll talk about a few of these things. There's so much here that, but I, I just want to get, uh, get us appreciation uh, for the God of providence uh, and then the absolute authority uh, of the Bible regardless regardless of the, sec but it, uh, of the secular accounts. But it does give us an idea, I say, of what the world was like. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mentioned, well, I'm not going to say any more. Uh, I was going to talk about the Siloam inscription, right, about Hezekiah as well. Um, that's interesting. And you're, you're going to Israel. I think you're going to see the Siloam inscription. Yeah, cool. Be good. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we give thanks for thy word, the authority of it, the truth of it, that it stands forever regardless of the attacks that would be leveled against it. So, Lord, give us a greater appreciation for thy word, and as we will consider some of these ancillary matters, give us some illumination as to why uh, it is that Thou didst say what thou said in this precious book. So guide our thoughts. Let this be a profitable discussion for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.